I'll be reading from God's Word. We'll be reading from 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 through 7. That can be found on page 992 uh, in the Bibles around you. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of a devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Trailhead. Happy Mother's Day. Woohoo. Y'all are like, sweet, thanks. Yeah, um, you're either a mother or you have a mother, so happy Mother's Day to you, right? That, that pretty much uh, includes everybody. Now, I know that today is a complex day. Um, today is a day of great joy for some of you. Um, your heart is, is full and overflowing. It is also a day of sorrow for others, uh, a day that brings painful memories or back painful experiences. And honestly, for most of us, it's a mix of both. Uh, it is a day that, that we, we have a mixture of both joy and sorrow. And so to enter into this, to honor the complexity of this day, um, I, I wrote just a, a, a special liturgy for this morning. It is a call and response liturgy. Um, you guys, I, I know we've been shifting toward a little bit more liturgy in the service. Um, and for some of you, this is totally new. And for some of you, it's a flashback to previous church experiences, maybe positive, maybe not. Um, I don't know, but, but I can tell you this, I, I'm, I'm just becoming convinced that there is a power in liturgy uh, that enables us to respond um, to truths, um, but also to come together as a community uh, and to, um, to share joy and express sorrow. There's power in it, but the power comes from engaging. The power comes from actually thinking about engaging the words, right? When you think about the songs that we sing, right? You're not making up those words on the fly, are you? Right? You're singing words someone else wrote for you to sing, but they're powerful to you because they help you enter into a truth, right? So when we engage liturgy, the power comes when we're fully present with it, right? When we're thinking about what we're saying and we're allowing it to, to become the expression of our hearts together, okay? So we're going to work through this, this, just this brief Mother's Day liturgy, um, Receive what you need to receive, and let's make sure that we are rejoicing with those who rejoice and sorrowing with those who sorrow. For those who find today a day of great joy, celebrating children or grandchildren and mothers worthy of honor, we celebrate with you. For those who are tired, discouraged, and frustrated by the long, unpredictable, and exhausting path of motherhood, we honor you. For those of you who have lost a child in an untimely way, we mourn with you. For those of you who are filled with warmth at the thought 
of your mothers, we give thanks with you. For those who are filled with sorrow because you have lost your mother or because she was never what you needed her to be, we grieve with you. For those who are pregnant with new life, we anticipate with you. And for those who long for motherhood but have not been able to fulfill that dream, we honor your noble desires and share in your sadness. This Mother's Day, we walk with you. Mothering is not for the faint of heart, and we have real warriors in our midst. We celebrate you. Happy Mother's Day. All right, you guys, we are in week two of a five-week series working our way uh, through the topic of, of eldership. It is um, one of the key distinctives of Trailhead Church that we are an elder-led church. We're not unique in that way. I'm not saying we're the only ones, but, but it is a key distinctive. It is from the beginning, uh, one of the intentional pieces that uh, we have tried to, to build as our, as our foundation, right? When I launched Trailhead Church eight years ago, I wanted to follow the New Testament pattern um, for, for church structure and leadership uh, as closely as possible. Um, I'm a Bible guy, right? Um, I love the Bible. Um, it is the most remarkable book ever written. Um, the more I've studied it, the more I have come to appreciate it uh, and, and to value it, right? In this book, you have 66 different books written by around 40 different authors. It was written in three different languages. It was written over a time span of around 2,000 years. And yet when you look at this book from cover to cover, when you go from Genesis to Revelation, you find that it tells a single compelling story of God's redeeming and restoring. It is a remarkable book. The only way a book like this exists is if it wasn't written by 40 different authors. The only way it exists is if it was written by one. There was a project manager on this book, somebody who was working through the authors to write these things, progressively revealing his will, God himself, giving us this gift of revelation. And I see it as both sufficient for everything we need in life and faith, and authoritative. In other words, it, it gives me what I need to do life right, but it also tells me what I need to do to get life right, right? It is sufficient and it is authoritative. I don't sit over the Word, right? When I'm, when I'm preaching, I, I don't sit over the Word trying to find good advice to give to you. I, I sit under the Word, Right? The word is authoritative over me. And in fact, my words only carry authority insofar as they actually come from the word and open it up in authenticity and accuracy, right? I, I, I open the word, I, I sit under it, I don't sit over it. All that to say, I wanted to model this new church as closely to what I found in the scriptures as I possibly could. And when I read the New Testament, there was something. Um, electric about the church, right? When you read through the book of Acts, when you read through the New Testament, there was an experience there. I wanted, right? They were rich in joy and in freedom and in power. They were rich in ways that honestly, with all of our affluence and all of our vacations and all of our, man, most of us are, are in poverty compared to them. In the true riches of joy, freedom, um, um, uh, uh, power, 
I want that for us. And one of the critical things that I saw in the New Testament church was that they were elder-led. Every single one of them. When you read through the New Testament, every single one of the churches were, were governed and led by locally raised up elders. And so um, I think it's important. I think it's important for us to take time to unpack why we're elder-led and what it means, right? What the Bible has to say about elders, who they are, what makes them qualified, what they're expected to do. And so we are in week two of a five-week series, um, and I have really three purposes for this series. The first is I think it'll be good for all of us uh, to understand what the Bible has to say about church governance and um, the, the eldership. And, and with that, I think um, I want us to consider our own growth in grace, right? Because when we're talking about elders in the church, we're talking about people that are mature in the faith. And, and honestly, um, every single one of us should be pursuing the same path. Whether or not we will function as elders in the church, we should be pursuing maturity in Christ, right? Developing our faith so that we're becoming mature members of the body. And so I want us kind of wrestling with that, all of us. Secondly, I'm calling us as a body to pray that God would raise up more elders for Trailhead Church. We currently have seven elders functioning. We have eight because we have one that's on sabbatical. Um, and you're like, man, that's a lot of elders. You want more? And I'm like, yeah, yeah absolutely. I would, I would honestly love to get to 10. Um, and I'll tell you why. Partly because our elders oversee our community groups, and as our community groups grow and expand, um, for them to effectively know the people in those community groups, pray for those people, coordinate with those leaders, uh, we need to have enough elders to, to be able to effectively do that. And secondly, um, eldering's hard, and I would love to start building in some breaks for these guys. Um, you know, we're eight years in, and, and what I'm finding is, is about four years in, um, most of the guys are hitting a wall. Uh, it is just very, very demanding, and, and these, are, these are guys that have very full lives um, outside of the church, right? And, and so I would love to have enough elders that we can actually get a healthy rotation, that we can actually start getting some guys on sabbatical in a healthy way, um, and, um, and we're doing that. The Lord has provided. We've been able to do that, but for us to continue to do that means we need to raise up more elders, and so I'm calling the body to pray that God will raise up more qualified leaders to help us lead. And thirdly, if you are a man who believes that God is calling you to self-nominate to be an elder, I'm going to encourage you to self-nominate. Go to trailheadonline.org slash elders. Uh, I've got the URL on the screen behind me. Um, go there and, and you will find a self-nomination form. And, um, and I'm going to encourage you, if God is, is leading you to take this step, uh, even if you just want to explore it and find out if it's... Um, I would encourage you to pursue that, right? Or at least pursue conversations that might take you in that direction if God is, is potentially leading you in that way, but, but you're not sure you should self-nominate. Let's have some conversations. Talk to some of the existing elders, uh, but at least let's, let's start moving with that. All right, I know that I, I just raised some questions for some of you hmm. by saying that elders need to be men. Um, there's no secret that, that our elders are men, um, and, um, and I know many of you, or at least some of you, have questions. Why do we limit the role of the elder to men? Well, first of all, it, it, it's the example that we find throughout the New Testament. When we look at all the churches of the New Testament, all the elders installed were men. The apostles were men. But that's descriptive, right? And things that are descriptive don't always have 
authority. Um, and, and so while it is, it is the descriptive, um, we look at the description of the early church, it's also prescriptive. When we look at the, the two lists of elder qualifications uh, that are given in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3 and, and in Titus 1, what we find is it both lists specifically say that elders are to be men. Um, in both lists, it says they are to be husbands of one wife, um, which literally in the Greek, it's, it's kind of a strange, it's, there are three Greek words there. It literally says, man, one, woman. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in English, and so translators translate that to husband of one wife. But literally, it's saying the elder candidate or the elder needs to be a man, and specifically, he needs to be a one-woman man. The kind of one, a man that, that um, is a covenant man, not, not a, uh, a flirtatious man, not a man who is prone to abuse his power, to gain pleasure, not looking for the affection of people um, from women, um, somebody who's prone to, to that kind of, of flirtatious abuse, right? No, he needs to be a, a one-woman man. All right, so I know, I know that this is um, not a popular stance today. I know, because I, I've had the conversations, um, that people will come to me and say, Steve, I think this is sexist and regressive, right, for, for the church to be uh, led by elders who are only men. And, and here's the thing, I want you to hear this. Um, I know that there have been and continue to be churches led by men that abuse their power, men that... that um, do not honor the women in their churches um, and use that power to silence their voices, reduce their influence, um, and uh, protect their own position. And, and, and when I'm in conversations with folks, often people will, will kind of push on me and say, well, then if you see that, don't you think the solution is to become egalitarian? To, to have both men and women as elders, to, to recognize that both can sit around that table, right? Are, are you afraid of having women in leadership? And, and they would often assert that, that, and this is popular today, this is kind of the line of thinking, that really the only difference between men and women is biological, right? We, we might have biological differences, but all the rest of the differences are sociologically implied and created by culture. Right? So, so if we reinterpret the differences of gender and see um, the biological differences as increasingly fluid, as, as we have more and more advances that allow people to change this sort of thing, then it's all superficial. It's all superficial. Why would you make a distinction on such a superficial grounds? Um, and I think, I think those are good questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that for some, any distinction that we make based on gender is going to be seen as an issue of justice flowing from um, inequality um, and unequal power structure. All right, so having said that, I get it. Um, I get the reservations and I get the, the, uh, the pushback. Um, but obviously, we are not egalitarian, right? That is not our position. Um, our position is often called complementarian. Uh, it's a title that I think is descriptive and is a good title. I hesitate to even use it because there are many complementarian churches that honestly are not very complementarian. Um, they're not very good at doing what they say they do. They, they use complementarian as a title but actually um, don't honor the complementary gifts 
uh, of the genders. Why are we called complementarian? What does that even mean? Uh, complementarianism is based on uh, an understanding of male and female as genders, as complementary genders created by God, right? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image, in his own image he created them. Male and female, he created them, right? So God created humanity in his own image, and part of that imaging was creating gender. Male and female, two, two, two people, equal in worth, equal in dignity, equal in gifting, but complementary in their differences, Equal, but complementary, comp, uh, complementary in their in their differences, and and Genesis one tells us that that in fact reflects the very nature of God, that that He was creating them in His own image, and and part of that imaging was the diversity, right? When we look at the Godhead, what we see is is um, this same complexity reflected, right? And in the Trinity, you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three who's and one what right? That's the best I can do um, on the explanation, right? Three who's and one what. It's a, it is an eternal mystery. But you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power, equal in dignity, equal in, in glory, equal, equal in every single way possible. All three fully, completely, authoritatively God. And yet within the Godhead, we see them relating to each other according to roles, right? Equal in character, equal in power, equal in glory, different in roles, right? As we see, uh, as God reveals to us, graciously reveals to us the inner workings of what it means to be in the Trinity, we find that the the Father leads and the Son submits, right? And and the Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. And and that submission is not because of, of an exertion of power, it is an expression of love. Because in the Trinity, what we find is not competition, but community, an eternal dance of love, of knowing and being known, loving and being loved, right? Why do we even know what it means to love? Why do we even know what it means to, to come together in different ways, to bring different characteristics, to create something new and better than we can have on our own? Because that's the expression of the image of God. God Himself is diversity and unity. And we come together in our differences to find something together that is greater than we can create alone and on our own, right? To image God, we need one another. We need the complementary differences that God has created and given to us. Now, we live in a culture where the word submit is pretty much a bad word. Because as soon as we start talking about submission, people hear abuse of power. And again, understandably, because there's not a power structure on this earth that hasn't been abused, right? There's nobody who's had power that hasn't been tempted to use that power for self-gain, self, to, to silence others and promote self, right? Because we're all sinful, right? And so any power structure, no matter who's uh, holding that power, is, is, is prone to abuse, but but. Submission itself isn't a bad word. Otherwise, God Himself would be the embodiment of injustice and abuse. Submission is a beautiful part of God's design, just as the godly exercise of authority for the flourishing of life is part of God's design. So all that to say, y'all, Trailhead needs strong men, and Trailhead needs strong women. We need men and women operating in their gifts 
free to glorify God together, all growing in grace under the leadership of the elders. What's kind of funny is that even as an elder, I walk in submission to the elders, right? I'm the lead pastor, which is kind of a made-up title. It doesn't mean anything. Um, I am just an elder among elders. And, and here's the thing. The elders have authority only as a group. When the elders get together and make decisions together, they make elder authority level decisions. Each individual elder walking around doesn't carry elder authority. They're walking around in submission to the elders. Everybody in the church is walking in submission to the elders, even the elders themselves. And the elders use their authority for the good of the body, for the flourishing of life, for the advancement of grace. Um, Having said that, under that authority, we want to see every single individual using their gifts to the fullest measure, to the fullest measure. Um, Every gift a man has been given, a woman has been given. We, We don't make gender distinctions on gifting or the exercise of those gifts. We have we have women leaders in, in our diaconate, right? We have women deacons who lead teams and teams of teams, right? My executive director is a woman, right? Lori is gifted in leadership, and she leads our staff and our deacon team, and she is phenomenally good at it. Um, we want to see um, everyone exercising their gifts. Um, but we do believe, biblically, um, that God has said very specifically that the elder role was, uh, was gender-limited uh, for men. Now, if you want to do more study, I would encourage you to do it. I would love to have further conversations with you about this. A book that I would recommend is Kathy Keller's um, book, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. It, it is a short, very well-written and engaging book um, that I think uh, effectively communicates um, both biblically why we hold to this position, but also as a woman, how she herself wrestles with it, um, the implications of it as a very strong leader herself. Um, and so it, it, don't worry if you forgot the title already. Just go to Connection Point. We'll remind you, okay? Uh, and if you want to, I'll be happy to buy it for you. All right, last week, Aaron took a look at verse 1. Let me remind you of verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Um, this verse is both an invitation and a caution. The way Paul words this verse is, um, is really important. Our, our translation is a little misleading, and I don't, I don't fault the translators. Again, it's a difficult translation. But the word office in our English translation isn't in the Greek. Right, that word just isn't there. Um, we put it there in the translation because, again, if we translate it directly from the Greek, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It would, it would read like this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to overseer shipping, he aspires to a noble task. I think actually a better way of translating this is if anyone aspires to the work of an overseer. He aspires to a noble task. The focus isn't on the office. The focus is on the work. Um, and this is a good caution because there are going to be some people who want the office, not because of the work, but because of the title, not because of the labor, but because of what they perceive as, as an increased level of importance. Maybe they have, uh, you know, an, an, an inner circle idolatry, um, uh, an influence craving, right? That they, they want to have an important voice. They want to be seen, or, or maybe they just want to, to help. Um, they, they want to feel important. They want to get attention. And, um, 
As Aaron said last week, if your motivation is to get the title, you're likely not qualified for the task. Um, This verse is saying very, very clearly, it's not a noble thing to desire the office, right? It's not about chasing a title. It's about desiring a work. It's a good thing to desire the weight of the task, even if you never bear the title. So what does it mean to be an overseer. There are three titles used in the New Testament to describe an elder. Um, elder is, is the one we use the most. We talk about the, being an elder-led church. Uh, shepherd is another one, uh, sometimes translated pastor, right? So when I call myself a lead pastor, I'm using that second title, shepherd, pastor. They, they mean the same thing. And, and the third is overseer. Now, all three of these titles speak of the same group of people. These aren't three different groups of people. These aren't distinct, separate uh, leadership teams. Uh, these are just three aspects of the same leadership team, three, three ways of looking at the same task. So what does it mean when, when Paul says it is a good thing to desire the work of an overseer, that, 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 that you desire a, a noble task? What is an overseer? Well, I think the word is, is very descriptive and, and very helpful. An overseer technically is a leader, right? It, it comes from the Greek word episkopos. Uh, sometimes it's translated overseer. Sometimes it's translated bishop. If you've ever heard anybody in a church called a bishop, that's why. Uh, it's a translation of this, of this word. Um, the word itself means someone who is a manager or a supervisor. It's a leader, right? Somebody who oversees. (laughs) The word is pretty descriptive, right? Uh, This speaks of the function of the elder in in getting an above view of what's happening for the purpose of leading, right? Somebody who's not just going through life in the church, but, but is stepping away, right? Not just at the Google Street View, but getting into the Google Satellite View so that they can get a picture of what's happening in the body and around the body for the good of the body. A couple guys, Hafitz and Linsky, wrote a great book called Leadership on the Line. It is um, one of my, probably one of my top three leadership books. Um, it's phenomenal. But, but in this book, one of the metaphors they use to describe the complexity of leadership is this idea of the dance floor and the balcony. And the idea is this, leaders have to be both on the dance floor and in the balcony. They have to have the ability in the midst of the dance, in the midst of the interactions of, of a meeting or, or in our context of, of a community group or, or a sermon or, or a conflict. Or, or They have to have the ability to be present, fully present, but also to step back and to get a detached perspective, not just of, of what's happening around them, but their role in it. You have to simultaneously be able to be on the dance floor and in the balcony, involved in, in kind of the, the, the messy chaos of life, but also able to get that overview, that detached perspective that allows you to make wise decisions, right? On the dance floor, of course, there's motion and chaos, and there's joy, and there's struggle, and in the balcony, there's quiet. And there's a different perspective that allows you to see the interactions and the movements all around the room, not just, not just from, from what you're feeling and experiencing, but from what other people are feeling and experiencing and how, how they are um, 
experiencing the whole process. That allows you to then, in the dance, adjust not only your role in it, but, but pay attention to others to help them flourish uh, in, in the process, right? It allows you to adjust and to lead even in the midst of the dance. Now, I love this analogy. I think it, I think it describes the role of an overseer really well um, because it helps us guard against two errors that I've seen other churches and church leaders, and, and there's a temptation even for myself to fall into. Um, one temptation is to get just too caught up in the dance, <laughs> right? To get so wrapped up in, in what's happening around me, whether it's something really, really good, uh, and I get so wrapped up in the joy of it, I'm not seeing um, how, how others are, are being impacted by it, right? This sort of thing happens all the time when, when maybe you're in the lobby and you see some good friends and, and you're like, yeah, it's so good to see you and you're talking and, and you're happy and, and you go home and you think, man, this is the friendliest church in the world and you didn't notice the people that had to uh, work their way around these tight little groups but weren't part of them. And their experience was one of isolation. Because they saw these people having these wonderful conversations, smiling, laughing, and hugging one another, but they themselves were not invited in because either they weren't known or they weren't valued. Right? There's a temptation sometimes for us to get so wrapped up in our experience that, that we're not seeing the experience of others. Right? It can happen in conflict when, when I get so wrapped up in, in, in um, a conflict that either I'm involved in because I have a problem with something someone said or did, or they have a problem with something I said or did, or, or I'm stepping into someone else's conflict that I can lose the perspective of how the conflict itself is playing out and affecting others. Or maybe I just get wrapped, too wrapped up in my own emotional reaction to it. And instead of doing what is wise, I do what feels good. And instead of doing what is, is gracious and right, um, I do what, what is most satisfying to me, right? So, so there's a temptation sometimes to get too wrapped up with the dance itself and get carried away by the moment and the movement and get reactive in our leadership instead of proactive. Um, and what ends up happening is, is when we do that, people get hurt. And often we don't even see the people that are getting hurt because we're just wrapped up in our own experience, right? So, so elders need to be on the dance floor, they need to be involved in the, in the life of the church and in the, in the body experience. But they need to be able to get into the balcony to get that big picture, to keep an eye out uh, on themselves and on others and, and on the movement of, of the whole thing, right? Now, here's the thing. You also need to make sure you stay on the, on the dance floor because there's also a temptation to camp out in the balcony. It's kind of peaceful up there. You know what I'm saying? To get a little isolated from community, and, 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 and that's just too messy, and that's too demanding, and, 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 and you know, it's kind of weird when I go to community group, and I'm the lead pastor, and, and we're discussing the sermon, and it's like, I'm the one who gave it, and, um, and, and so, you know, the discussion's going on, but everyone just keeps looking at me to give answers or something. I'm like, this is just weird. I'm going to go camp out in my balcony. Y'all go do life. I'll walk from a distance. A huge temptation for leaders to become isolated and separate from the community, and in the process to become somewhat prideful to think that they can lead a community without themselves being involved in that community, that they're leading others to know and be known, to love and be loved, to be vulnerable, and and to grow in grace while they themselves become detached from the very mechanisms God created for us to grow. We need to be on the dance floor, and we need to be 
in the balcony. It's essential that our elders are in both. That way they know what's, what's going on in the church. They, they, they know how the discipleship models are working. They know um, um, the mood and, and the, 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 the direction. But they're also detached enough that they can direct and correct, even at times, their own hearts to help adjust the direction of the church. And because this is kind of a chaotic dance, I think that's a good metaphor for church life, for a community, right? We all come together with the same purpose, um, but we're all a little bit diverse in the way we do it, right? Um, We probably have different kinds of dancers in here. Put you all in the same room. Some of you are going to gravitate toward the line dancing, and some of you are going to gravitate toward the mosh pit. Um, And and those two kinds of dancing don't always mix well. Um, and, And so... The dance floor is, I think, a good, a good metaphor um, for growing in grace, right? Because that's why we come together in the body of Christ, right? You might go to the dance floor because you want to have fun. You, you, you are part of the church because you have this incredible gift called the grace of God that offers you growth and development, transformation and change that allows you to become who God has created you to be, to have an increased experience of joy, freedom, power, to become like Christ. We come together as the church not to be entertained or not to waste a Sunday morning or or not to... We come together as the body of Christ because we believe the Spirit of Christ is at work in that body. And we will be enriched and we will be transformed as we invest into it and are invested into it by it, right? So, so the elders need to be part of that dance, growing in grace, even as they seek to lead it. It's essential that they are overseers. So what exactly do they oversee? Right? What are they looking at as, as overseers? What is the essential work of an overseer? Um, now, here's the thing. This isn't spelled out anywhere in the Bible. The title is given, Elders Are Overseers, but it's never exactly told uh, exactly what they oversee. And so, uh, as I thought about it, I came up with some categories that I thought were essential for church health, right? Um, throw them on the screen. Doctrinal purity. The elders oversee the doctrine of the church. I'm accountable. As I get up here and I open the Bible and I start talking, um, This isn't just the Steve show, right? Again, I'm under the authority of the Word, and I'm under the authority of the elders, and it's the elders' responsibility to make sure that what I'm teaching is, in fact, in line with what the Bible teaches. The elders protect the doctrinal purity of the church. They are the ones that have been entrusted the apostles' doctrine, to use the New Testament language. And it is their job to make sure that we are proclaiming the apostles' doctrine and moving forward in it, that, that this revelation that has been given to us is being honored by us, and we are moving forward and it's truth. They are, they are to oversee the legal and fiscal integrity of the church, right? They are to make sure that, that um, uh, things are done above board, that, that, that the money that is entrusted to us as a church is used responsibly for the mission of the church, that, that we are, in fact, um, honoring the appropriate legal structures so that we are in good standing with our government and our our community, right? They, they are responsible for the discipleship structures of the church. 
How, how are we helping people grow in grace? How are we people ta- helping people take the next step of faith? How are we helping people go from where they are to where they desperately want to be but have no idea how to get there? What structures are we putting in place? What strategies are we developing? How are we helping people make those steps, which leads to personal and interpersonal growth, right? As elders, we are responsible for each individual member in the church, their personal growth in Christ. Now, now obviously, we can't take responsibility for their growth, but we are responsible to to help them grow. We are responsible to help them engage the Scripture, to grow in prayer, to, to have an increased devotion to God and an increased response to grace, to help them grow in the faith that God has given them, right? We're also responsible for the way they interact with each other, right? We, we're responsible for, for conflict in the church, which anytime you have people together, there's going to be conflict, right? Conflict isn't the problem. It's how you solve the conflict or ignore the conflict. That's the problem. And so, so especially in a church like ours, we have such um, age and political diversity. Conflict is inevitable, right? And so it's our responsibility to make sure that, that we are coming alongside and, and helping brothers and sisters walk together in the grace of Christ, right? Mission effectiveness, how, how effective is Trailhead Church being in carrying out the mission of Christ, right? The mission that, that we would be disciples who are making disciples, that, that we are growing in our love for God and growing in our love for one another and growing in our love for the world, that we are carrying the message of the gospel out to, to those who, who don't believe it yet while we are still drinking humbly and desperately from that same fountain of grace. They oversee the cultural threats and opportunities that surround us because the church uh, never exists outside of culture. It's within a culture, and and every human culture is going to be a reflection of both glory and ruin. And there are aspects of that glory that we are called to redeem and embrace, and there are aspects of that culture that are ruinous and destructive. And and it is the elder's job to to be watching the currents of culture to find out where, where are those currents going to bring us opportunities for the advancement of the gospel, and where are those currents going to bring potential danger and harm. All right, that, that list, I, I just came up with that in like five minutes. There's more. Um, and that right there, honestly, I just quit because that was already too intimidating for me. That's a lot to oversee, y'all, to be responsible for. That, that right there is a weighty responsibility. I mean, honestly, to do it perfectly would require every elder to be a doctrinal giant, a legal expert, a systems guru, a perfect servant leader, and absolutely culturally engaged. I don't live up to that. That's overwhelming. So it's interesting that when we look at the qualifications of an elder, which is the rest of of this list in 1 Timothy, Paul gives us a list of qualifications for an overseer. There's not one of them that's about competency. They're all about character. Right? There's not one thing in here that talks about job history. There's not one thing in here that talks about personality type, financial records, the impressiveness of your resume, how well you've led in other contexts, 
how many, how many, how many companies you've produced or, or how impressive you are to your neighbors. There is nothing in here about competency. Every qualification in this list is about character. Character is the single most important trait. And I'm going to throw it out there. Character is the single most important trait, not just in leadership in the church, but in all human leadership. You can teach competency as long as somebody is humble and has aptitude. You can teach competency. You cannot teach character. Character is the result of wise choices over time under pressure. Character is the result of wise choices made over time under pressure. As we learn to follow Christ when it's costly. As we learn to push into the truth even when it challenges our desires. When we learn to grow in grace even when we want to become self-protective or self-promoting or others defeating. Every time we make wise choices over time under pressure, we're building character. Character has to be developed. And that's why I think Paul gives us um, not so much a job description as a man description. He's not saying find someone who can do these things. He's saying find someone who has developed these traits. So what are the traits that are listed? What are the character qualities that describe um, a potential elder? Let's put a summary up here. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1 are the two places where we have a detailed list of the qualifications necessary for an overseer. And there's a little bit of difference in the two lists, but, but it's really, it's minuscule. It is, it is an almost identical list in both places. And I'm going to go through this in a million miles an hour. Above reproach uh, does not mean perfect. Otherwise, we'd have no elders. Um, above reproach means somebody who has grown in enough maturity that they have a track record of character. Above reproach means that they know how to run to grace instead of pride. Above reproach means they know how to confess their sin instead of hide it. Above reproach means they know how to run to the fountain of grace to renew their energy instead of to the, to the resume or to performance or the applause of men. Above reproach doesn't mean that they are giants. It means that they have realized they're not. And they have learned how to be comfortable in their humble dependence on the grace of God. To produce in them what they can't produce themselves. So that they don't have to prove anything and they don't have to perform and pretend to make people believe an illusion about them. They're not trying to be impressive. Above reproach in the Christian church, above reproach in genuine culture, doesn't mean somebody who has it all together. It means they know Christ does. Listen, your elders don't sin any less than you do. They just know what to do with it. They confess it. 
they flee from it. They mortify the desires of the flesh. They have learned how to push into the grace of God to grow in the maturity in Christ. It doesn't mean that they've become sinless. It means that they have become rich in grace. Now, does that mean that they've they've learned how to defeat certain sins in their lives? Probably. But not because they've learned how to defeat it, but because they've learned how to defend on the Christ who does. Right? They're farther along the path of grace, which is a path of increasing humility and dependence. Not a path of of increasing self-glory and personal strength. They're above reproach. How does that manifest itself? Because that one is like the umbrella description for the rest of these. The rest of these are the areas in which you see that they have grown in grace. They're one-woman men. right? They, They don't chase... They don't chase skirts. They're, they're not flirtatious. They're not trying to find their strength of identity in the, in the affection of, of women. They're covenant men. Even if they're single men, they're covenant men, right? They're waiting for their one covenant wife, right? They're, they're, they're not out there they're, uh, being a player, right? Um, they are one-woman men. They're sober-minded. Um, they're not drunk in pride. They're not drunk on political affiliation. They're not drunk on, on, on the power of men or the structures. of. They're, they're sober-minded, which means that they have a clarity of thought that comes from, from humility and grace. They're able to enter into situations and have clarity of thought where other people are, are, are just um, confused by passions or by, by um, uh, unbiblical uh, desires. They are self-controlled. Um, they, they ultimately have developed a pattern in which they themselves are not controlled by their passions. They've learned how to control their passions. Not through an exertion of I'm dominating over myself, but learning how in humility to allow Christ to bring the fruit of self-control, right? Um, bringing the passions uh, and the imaginations of the heart under the control of grace. They're respectable, right? These, these are guys that, that um, they have a weightiness about them. You want to follow them, right? They, 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 they exude grace. And because they exude grace, you want to grow in grace. They're respectable, right? Which means that they have a character that actually provokes a response of respect. They're hospitable. Um, this does not mean that they have everybody in the church over to their home. Um, the word hospitable literally means uh, loving the stranger. In other words, they're, they're outwardly focused, they invite the outsider. They're constantly looking for the people that are on the margins to love them and invite them in. They, they are looking for the aliens and the strangers. They are looking for the most vulnerable. They are, and, and they are inviting them into an experience of grace. Right? And they're doing that often in the context of personal relationship, which is the hospitality, bringing them into their home, into their relationship, into their hearts. Right? It doesn't mean that, that every elder is inviting every person in the church over to their home, but it does mean that they, are, they have a, a view for the outsider. They're able to teach. Um, they have grown in grace to a point that they can actually equip others to grow in grace. They're not a drunkard. Um, doesn't mean they don't enjoy... Um, a fine beverage, but it does mean that they're not controlled by that beverage. It means that, that they're, they have their uh, appetites under control. They're not, a, they're not addicted. Um, they're not violent but gentle, right? They, in, in contexts of, of personal conflict, they're not quarrelsome. This is huge, right? We have a quarrelsome um, society. I don't know if you guys are on Twitter. Twitter is a cesspool these days, man. It is killing me. 
Um, and, and I'm talking about, like, I, I've selected, these are Christians that I'm on there with, right? People just love to fight, right? And, and I get it. I'm, I'm, you know, I was in my younger days up for a good verbal argument, right? Which might escalate to other things, right? I mean, confrontational can be fun. It can be fun to have a sparring of wits. It can be, but that kind of combativeness is often alienating and dehumanizing. It's often more about winning than growing, right? So, so an elder is not violent but gentle. They're not quarrelsome. They're not driven by a love for money, right? In other words, it's not greed that drives their hearts. It's grace that drives their hearts. It's not about building my kingdom. It's about building God's kingdom. It doesn't mean that they're not good with money. Uh, it just means they're not driven by a love of money. They manage their own household well, right? So that they've, in their personal relationships, have demonstrated a humility of grace that has equipped them to become um, uh, good husbands and, and, and fathers. Not a recent convert. Um, that's a, a, a pretty specific one because people who are recent converts, even though they may be growing rapidly in grace, haven't over time developed the solidity of character necessary to, to uh, endure an attack on their pride. And in the final one, they have a good reputation with outsiders. People outside, it's not just people who are close to them, who like them. It's even people that are outside of the circle, right, in their jobs, in their cul-de-sacs, in the neighborhoods, right? Their neighbors don't think they're horrible neighbors, right? Like, these are guys that this character bleeds out in every relationship, even outside of the church. Now, this is an intimidating list, just like the task is an intimidating task. Um, but the reality is this is the character that results from somebody who is growing in the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, somebody who's walking in the Spirit, will be growing in love, joy, peace, patience, um, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the character qualities that grow as somebody walks out the fruit of the Spirit over time under pressure in their lives. When leaders are chosen for their competence instead of their character, people suffer. Some of the most painful experiences people have had in church is be, it comes from the fact that the leaders were great businessmen, but not great followers of Christ. They had impressive resumes, but they didn't have an impressive character. They knew how to impress people. The church doesn't need elders that are impressive. The church needs elders that are humble, that are filled with grace, that are growing in their faith, that are driven by their love for God to love others. Competence can be trained. Character has to be developed over time under pressure. So two final thoughts. First, this list really is a description of Jesus. We look at the description of of an overseer. These are the character qualities that we see in Christ, right? Christ was a one-woman man. <laughs> he loved his bride so much that he went to the cross and died for her and rose again that she might be forgiven and, and, and brought home. He laid down his life in servant leadership. He was not quarrelsome unless it was necessary for the good of others. He didn't go looking for fights, but he didn't avoid them either. He was willing to stand up for the truth when standing up for the truth would cause the flourishing of life. He was also willing to challenge his own people, his own friends, when it was necessary to value the outsider and bring them into the circle of love. This description is a beautiful description of Christ. Secondly, it's the description of every mature believer. You want to know what it looks like to be a mature Christian? It's not about 
being at church every time the doors open. It's not about, it. you want to know what it looks like? It looks like somebody who is growing in character to look like Christ. Somebody just ask you, how are you doing in that? How are you doing growing in the character of maturity? How are you doing making wise choices under pressure over time to continue to push into grace, to rediscover humility, and discover the beautiful, um, sustaining power of God? Listen, is it, a good, it is a good thing to desire the work of an overseer, which means that it is a good thing to desire the character and pursue the character of an overseer. So let's keep praying that God raises up godly leaders, and let's keep praying that, that, um, that we will continue to grow in that maturity as well. All right, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to uh, go into a time of reflection and we will share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that uh, you've given this incredibly beautiful gift called the church. And that in this, this gift of community, you've laid out structures for the flourishing of that community. We thank you that you not only give us the structures, you then empower us to walk in them. So I would pray, Lord, for Trailhead, that we would be a people continuing to grow in the joy of our salvation, in the freedom that comes from grace, in the power and personal transformation that comes from the resurrection of Christ. I pray that we would continue to love the outsiders, those that are far from you who need to be brought near, those who haven't heard about your love that need an embodiment of that love for them to, to not only hear uh, a, a, an abstract message, but to see that message lived out in a very real way. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless the men that you have called to lead in this church and that you would continue to raise up more, that we might be a body that is growing in the flourishing blessing of grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.